Join us October 28th at 5 p.m. Pacific Time for a fundraising gala and to celebrate the 2022 Distinguished Citizens Awards. Make a donation to the Commonwealth Club to support our critical mission to provide balanced civil dialogue on society's most challenging issues. Text CLUB2022 to the number 41444 so you can register and donate today. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. I'm Attorney General Bonta. I think I speak for all of us to say we're so excited to have you on campus, and, and thank you for taking the time to be in conversation with us tonight. Honored to be here, um, everyone. So we're going to ask you so to kind of go through your journey and hopefully help us inspire young people um, to be involved in <laughs> politics, and sometimes that's an open question. And so I know um, often my experience with students is people really like to hear kind of what brought you uh, to where you are. So if you could start by just telling us either who or what, or who and or what, um, inspired you to become civically engaged. Pretty simple for me. My parents, I'm I'm very much my my parents' son, and my parents were um, social justice activists and advocates and were part of some of the greatest social justice movements our country has ever known. My, My mom is a... Immigrant from the Philippines, she came here when she was 28 years old. She rode, um, uh, was on a ship for three weeks and arrived here in Berkeley, actually, in in the 1960s. She went to grad school at the Pacific School of Religion, and uh, she met my father there. My father was involved in the civil rights movement at that time. He was a student in Berkeley when he had a, a, a colleague who was in Selma, Alabama, uh, organizing and audio uh, recording the voice of this incredible leader who was talking about a more just world and a, um, a more fair society. And he would send these audio cassette tapes to my father through the mail. Does everyone here know what an audio cassette tape is? <laughs> um, uh, old archaic uh, technology for recording sound, but he would send these audio cassette tapes uh, in, in the mail to my, fa- my father. And he, my father would open up the package, listen, and it was the voice of Martin Luther King Jr. And he felt called... Um, to, to action. He felt he had to be in Selma, Alabama. So as a student, as a grad student, he jumped on an Amtrak. He rode for three days and he arrived in Selma, Alabama. I mean, he met Stokely Carmichael when he was there. He uh, was in church with Martin Luther King Jr. He organized for civil rights and voting rights. He was part of one of the greatest, um, most defining social justice movements in the history of our country. And um, my mom and, and dad, after grad school, they went back to um, my mom's home country, the Philippines. And my sister was born uh, first, then me. And soon after I was born, my parents had to make a decision about the future of their family and their son and their daughter. And they wanted us to grow up in a place where they had civil rights and human rights, where they had due process and the rule of law, where there was a democracy. And they didn't see that in our future in the Philippines. And and they were right. Uh, Exactly a year from the date of my birth, martial law was declared by Ferdinand Marcos. Democracy ended as we knew it. Um, It was a dictatorship. Human rights uh, were... I wrote it, and if you were a political opponent to uh, Ferdinand Marcos, which my mother was, an outspoken one at that, you were arrested, imprisoned, tortured, and killed. And so they came, uh, we came to California to rebuild our lives, and they wanted uh, me and my sister to have the American dream, the California dream, and I'm, I'm living that dream uh, now, uh, to be able to serve and to help and to be in this incredible role that I'm so honored and privileged to be in. Um, the first thing my parents started doing when they got here was start working for the United Farm Workers of America. Uh, we landed in, um, in Echo Park 
And my parents grabbed clipboards, rolled up their sleeves, and started collecting signatures outside of supermarkets as part of the Let Us Boycott. Um, they were then invited to the headquarters of La Paz in the Central Valley. And uh, we lived in a trailer there. My, my father, uh, my mother, uh, my sister, and I, then my brother joined us. He was born while we were, my parents were serving. My dad worked in the front office with Cesar Chavez. Uh, my mom helped in the preschool uh, with Dolores Huerta, uh, the great Philip Veracruz, one of the great Filipino activists and organizers was there as well. So whether it was the civil rights movement or the farm worker movement or the ongoing movement to restore democracy in the Philippines culminated by the People Power Revolution in 1986, um, which occurred when I was a teenager. So my, my, my whole upbringing, I was going to rallies and demonstrations and protests with my mom um, because my birthday was the same day as the Declaration of Martial Law. My birthday, my mom would throw a birthday party for me and then she'd organize a protest. <laughs> and so, um, so I grew up in, a, in an activist household and... I don't know that I had a lot of choice as to whether uh, I would want to be one too. It was, it's in my DNA. It's like the air I breathe. It's who I am. It's part of my identity. It's part of who my family is. And so, um, in short, my parents. Thank you so much for sharing. That's an incredible, an incredible story. And I appreciate, just want to thank you for the work you've done to lift up the role that Filipinos have played in the UFW. Yeah, Since it's something that people often, it's in my book, but it's not, yes, a lot yes, of people don't talk about that. But um, from the beginning, right, and all the way through, it's been an important the, partnership. Um, so you talked about how you're, you're an immigrant and the, your, both your parents were incredible activists um, to advance civil rights in the U.S., um, what would you tell this audience about why it is important um, for people to be active in those ways and particularly um, in the support of, of our more marginal communities? I'd say that, that your vote is your voice, that engagement is the way you can affect change, be an agent of change, um, that you don't have to sit on the sidelines and just receive what is happening around you, especially if you're not happy with it, if you think it's unfair or unjust or there's not enough opportunity, um, you can change it. Um, but you can't if you sit on the sidelines. You can only do it if you engage, if you um, get off the sidelines and onto the field. And our democracy is built on engagement. Uh, some people say that the enemy of democracy is one party or one person. Um, to me, the enemy of democracy is apathy. When people um, don't engage, don't, don't care, um, whatever happens, uh, if everyone is involved, putting their best thoughts on the table, their best ideas, their best proposals for solutions, we're going to be in a good place. But if we don't engage, um, then we'll see some of that injust- uh, uh, lack of justice and injustice continue. Um, it's easier to maintain the status quo than it is to create change. And the way to create change is to be active and to be activists and to use all the tools that you're given. People have fought, died, bled, for the right to vote. And so many of us don't exercise it regularly. To me, it's, it's a patriotic duty to use the vote every time. Not just when the president is on the ballot, not just when the governor is on the ballot, when the dog catcher and only the dog catcher is on the ballot, when it's local, local initiatives and only local initiatives. Sometimes it's your local initiatives, your local electors are the most important ones in your lives. And so we must, from the day you are 18 until the day you die, if you have the right to vote, you must exercise it every time. And that's at a minimum. Um, and there's all sorts of other things you can be doing to engage and to um, advocate for change and catalyze for change as well. But um, if you don't fight for it, um, you will be the victim. You will be taken advantage of. There's a, a statement in politics. You might not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you, meaning that everything in your lives people are making decisions about. 
And don't you want to vote in the people that are making those decisions? Don't you want to have a voice in those decisions? Otherwise, they're going to be made without your input, without your values, uh, without your vision. So um, absolutely critical to our democracy, to your well-being, especially to the future of marginalized communities that have been overlooked, um, harmed, abused, mistreated, treated unjustly, to raise our voices. So what would you say, I mean, where do you think the narrative comes from? Um, I agree with you that, that politics affects every aspect of our lives and we should have a say in, in the people who represent us. So where do you think that message comes from, that votes don't matter, that your vote doesn't matter, you don't need to bother, it doesn't make any difference anyway? I don't know. Um, it, 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 but it's certainly a dangerous belief. Um, one, it, it, it's, it's a belief that when aggregated leads to the end of democracy because democracy requires engagement and voting by a large group of people regularly requires their input. It's also demonstrably false that your vote doesn't matter. There are so many votes in local elections where it's one vote that makes the difference. There's votes, I mean, look at Minnesota in 2008. Al Franken, um, almost 3 million votes cast. He won by about 300. And he was the 60th uh, senator he, because he was elected, he was, we, Obama was able to make history. Our country was able to realize history with the Affordable Care Act. Millions of people got health care because of those handful of votes, uh, 300 out of 3 million. And so in, in every vote, um, in every election, every vote matters. And it also matters because every time you don't vote, you are ceding electoral real estate to other voices, allowing their voices to be stronger because your voice is not a part of um, the, the electoral mix. So um, sometimes I've heard people say, I might vote if I'm inspired, if you get me out of my chair and out of my bed. If you don't inspire me, I'm, gonna, I'm good. I'm not going to vote. I, I, I understand that, but I think it's wrong. I think even if you don't feel inspired, do, do your research, pick the best. Maybe someone isn't Obama. I love Obama, as you can tell. Um, uh, you know, the, but the famous Obama voters who voted for him and never voted again because he got them out of their, their chair and out of their off the couch and into the voting booth. Um, but every vote, every election matters. And so it's important. Uh, sometimes you might just have to look at it from an in, industrious, uh, you know, hardworking uh, viewpoint where you're going to do your research, do your duty, make the best decision. Uh, but your voice is, is always needed to be in, in the room and, and on, the, um, on the ballot. Thank you for that. Um, as the birthplace of the free speech movement, UC Berkeley has been at the forefront of youth movements for decades. We are very proud that according to the National Study of Learning, Voting, and Engagement in 2020, 84.3% of eligible Berkeley students were registered to vote, and 75% voted in the presidential election. Those numbers are extraordinary when placed in context against 2014, which, as we know, was the lowest, actually, in California history, where only 52.3% of Berkeley students were registered and only 19.1% voted. So given we're coming up on a midterm election, which is always a challenge in terms of turnout, particularly for youth, uh, in the United States, and especially in California. How do you envision increasing the participation of Gen Z, as their, whatever the current name is, um, in politics in order to have that impact on our democracy? I mean, I, I'll say Gen Z gets it. They're showing up. They're turning out. They're engaged. Um, they know that their voices matter. Um, they aren't letting anyone turn them away or, or, or silence their voices. Uh, they're exercising their rights to the fullest extent and, and being loud in addition. So not stopping at the voting uh, booth, although that's very important. Those, those numbers are incredible and impressive. And if, if that's the, where we're trending, um, good for our democracy. And I've said to young people uh, many times, and I'll say it again, you are the leaders of tomorrow. 
but you're the leaders of today. You don't need to wait in line, wait your turn to act, to push, to fight for change. Some of the greatest movements, the greatest change our country has ever known were fueled by students. Students from Berkeley, um, students in colleges, um, students in, in, in high schools. Um, when you talk about young people today and you see um, folks in middle school, elementary school, high school, um, walking out of school because of, uh, as part of the climate strike and saying, uh, we need to do more. We need to be more urgent, more aggressive to address climate change. I want, I want to have a family, but I don't feel, this is what my daughter told me, but I don't feel it's responsible to bring a child onto this dying earth right now until we um, do things that are more drastic to save our planet for tomorrow. Or um, kids, students marching for our lives after because of gun violence, because they're saying we don't want to have um, active shooter drills or active shooters in our schools. And they're right to, to, to demand that. Uh, that, is, um, that is something that every young person should be able to rely on, a, a safe school and a safe place uh, to learn. Or, you know, going out and organizing and saying uh, Black Lives Matter, racial injustice must be addressed systemically, structurally. And so young people are leading the way in so many ways. And um, I always believe when you're given a set of tools, uh, you need to use every tool in the toolbox, from, from your vote uh, to your voice and activism to your ability to organize. Um, in, until you achieve the change that you seek. Thank you. I'm going to bring it back a little bit to the personal again um, and ask you to share. You've had an incredible career of service um, in a lot of different domains over the course of your time, both in the public and, and, and now as, as our attorney general. What have you found to be the most rewarding of being engaged in those different sectors over, over that time? You know, the through line for all of it, and I've served as a healthcare district director in Alameda, a vice mayor of my city of Alameda, assembly member for almost 10 years, a huge honor, attorney general. I served as a deputy city attorney in San Francisco for almost a decade. And the through line through it all, the thing that's the most rewarding is helping someone, making their life better, from the micro to the macro, from one person to a million people. Um, from something that affects um, you know, one individual and one family in one neighborhood to something that affects uh, a national policy. But every time it's the ability to uh, make lives better, um, make change, um, especially when it involves a long-standing injustice, righting a historical wrong, and um, something like ending the use of for-profit private prisons. I thought it was wrong. I don't think we should profit from uh, the prison industrial complex. We shouldn't have that in California. I threw the bill to end them. They're, they're ended. And that's a big change for where we were and, and where we're going. Um, and, you know, we had, as, an, as the Attorney General, we had, there was a proposal from Instagram to have an Instagram for Kids uh, platform where it was specifically focused on and targeted towards uh, our youngest kids. And we were able to stop that from happening. And sometimes, I, you know, the, my, the most powerful moments for me when I meet with someone... Uh, one-on-one, and they're, they're impacted by some sort of unfairness or in, unju- injustice. They're suffering from environmental injustice, and they're telling me with tears in their eyes that the cancer rates in their neighborhood are, 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 are high, and they've lost their, their sister and their uncle. Or um, they're telling me that they got out of prison, and they have turned their life around. They want to get a job, and they want to get housing, but they can't because they're prohibited when they have to uh, put their, uh, indicate their, their felony conviction. And we're, when we're able to change those things, when someone tells me uh, personally, authentically, powerfully, emotionally often, 
about something that they suffered from, and I know I have the opportunity, the ability to change it, and not just change it for that person, but for anyone under similar circumstances, that's the most rewarding thing for me. Thank you so much. I want to remind our audience, if you want to ask your own questions, please fill out your card and give it to Lauren over there, and she'll share, because I'm about to ask my last question. Which is, uh, if you read the paper, there's a lot of doom and gloom around politics these days and not a lot of positive stories. Um, can you share with us uh, what it is that has either inspired or given you hope for democracy recently? There is a lot of doom and gloom. Um, and I, I will say, I, I, I don't have the greatest longitudinal perspective, but I've been in politics and policy for two decades plus. And I've never seen it this divisive. I've never seen it this extreme. I never thought there would be a time when uh, we weren't just debating about our ideological uh, or political philosophies, but we were debating about the facts. The facts are not up for debate. The facts are the facts. Um, you can, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. But people feel entitled to their own facts. There are some people today who feel that there's only two outcomes to an election. Either you won or you were cheated. Um, not that you could possibly have lost. And that's a problem when it comes to democracy. And so um, I, I also believe that in the darkest moments, you see the best in people. You see people rise up and you see our beautiful and powerful American spirit, spirit prevail. COVID was one of those times, uh, a harsh time, a, a, a horrible time, a time I hope we'll never see again. But we saw neighbors helping neighbors. We saw uh, people stepping up to feed each other. We saw uh, the pharmaceutical companies put down their competitive differences and work to make, in record time, new vaccines. Uh, we saw people step up for one another. And so um, I'm inspired by this moment and um, by the response that we're seeing. The engagement is through the roof, through the Trump administration, and even now with some of the Supreme Court decisions that are taking away rights that have been uh, constitutionally protected for over 50 years. People are not accepting it, laying down. They're fighting, they're pushing, they're uh, fighting for their democracy and fighting for this, this country, which, you know, it's still a, a young, relatively young democratic experiment. And through all that, the young people are the ones. They're, 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 they're clear-eyed, their moral clarity um, about issues from climate to guns to race relations. Um, they know what is right and what is wrong, and they're voicing that, and they're holding adults, older people, accountable for not doing enough and not doing it fast enough and not being aggressive. And so um, our next generation gives me a, a lot of hope and a lot of optimism for the future. Thank you. That is a perfect So segue. no pressure, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, y'all need to fix the things we screwed up. Yeah. <laughs> so now we get to hear what the, the next generation wants to know. Okay. Oh, this is a good one related to the, the voting question. What should we as voters do when we feel that none of the options on the ballot reflect our voice? You can write someone in if you want. That does reflect your voice. Um, and uh, so, so, but always express your voice. Or I mean, another approach is, um, you know, understand that no one's perfect. You're never going to have someone that's going to match your voice uh, exactly. Um, I've always said to people that if, if you expect me as your elected official to vote the way you would vote on every issue, uh, then I'm not your guy. 
Um, I hope you'll uh, support my values, um, my vision, and know that I'm going to work hard, be well-informed, and, and make the best decision I can. Um, so you could also vote for the person that's closest to your vision. But you must vote. <laughs> that, that part has to happen. But feel free to put someone in that you're excited about if there's no one on the ballot that does excite you. So a number of the questions express a certain skepticism and frustration with our political process, and I'm just so excited as a political science professor that y'all know the political process, so yay. (laughs) So one of these is a very inside baseball question, which is, do you believe the Electoral College, the Senate, and gerrymandering somewhat undermine, and you can see there's a, I think that was more strongly worded originally, so nice job being diplomatic. The notion that our vote is our voice. In Wisconsin, a Democrat, if, sorry, if 53% voted Democrat, while Republicans got 64%, 53% of people voted Democrat, but Republicans got 64% of, of assembly seats. What should they do if voting yields that result? Um, have, have and enforce the strongest voting laws possible, including anti-gerrymandering laws. As, I mean, we, you, you all know we have two major parties in this country. And um, in my view... Humbly, I believe one of the party's strategies is to uh, pursue voter suppression and gerrymandering to win. That they can't win when everyone votes, when the, when the right to vote is accessible uh, and fair to all. And we've seen that happening in real time. We're seeing voter suppression in different states. We were part of a brief in Florida to uh, fight back against voter suppression laws. We've seen... Um, gerrymandering happening in many states where it's a very politicized process, unlike ours here in California, where we have um, a, a electoral commission that decides uh, the, the districts based on communities of interest, which is supposed to be and, and is less political. So you're right to see gerrymandering, to see voter suppression and feel like it's uh, an infringement upon our democracy. It is. Those things are, 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 are a problem for democracy. The Electoral College is our constitutionally, um, currently our constitutionally required approach. Do we want direct, direct democracy? A lot of people are asking for it. There's a way to make that change, but we have to go through the process in our constitution to get to um, a popular vote um, winner of the, of the president, for example. When Al Gore got, um, well, we'll have to talk about... Um, uh, they, they Bush versus Gore. Okay, uh, who's Al Gore? <laughs> All right, so I'll, I'll go to, I mean, Hillary Clinton um, getting more popular votes than, than Trump and not being the president. And, and so that's a problem for people, understandably, but there's a way to make that change. So you're right to, to, to look out across the different components of our democracy, ask yourself what's fair, what's not fair, what are infringements upon democracy and what are not, and to push back against the infringements as they exist. And that is a perfect segue to the next question, which is, I completely agree that the vote or ballot is the most powerful essential tool Americans have at their disposal. However, underrepresented socioeconomic groups have been and often continue to have their voices and their votes suppressed. How can we convince our elected officials to make reducing voter suppression a priority? You know, there's one really interesting um, uh, story I want to tell about someone that you, I'm sure, have all heard of now, but maybe didn't uh, a number of years ago, and that's Stacey Abrams in Georgia. So she was a law school classmate of mine. I'm very honored to say when she was the minority leader in uh, the Georgia um, House, she came out to California when I was in the assembly and she visited me. And she said, 
um, here's my plan. I'm going to reach out to voters throughout Georgia, state I know, uh, that have never been reached out to before. The, the, the way that our system works right now is they, they look at those who have already uh, are likely voters, four out of five voters, five out of five voters, maybe three out of five voters, and they reach out to them. So if you voted before, you're going to be contacted. If you never voted before, um, you're not going to be contacted. Or if you're not an infrequent voter, she's like, I'm going to reach out to those who are the infrequent voters. And, and we're gonna, I'm going to be on people's porch. Uh, we're going to have trusted messengers talking to them. We're going to engage them uh, with people who look like them, who care about them, who care about the issues they care about. And we're going to get them uh, to vote. And I was like, okay, Stacy. Um, all the political science up to that point would not suggest that that was possible. But she literally, in my view, rescued democracy in the United States. Uh, with the elections that came out of Georgia. They, um, there was a, um, a Biden win there. There was a Warnock win. There was an Ossoff win. Two senators and, and the president in Georgia. And a lot of it with the organizing uh, that she did through Fair Fight and, and her other organizations. So um, people, there, that is a type of suppression where you are marginalized because you're ignored. You're not reached out to. You're not engaged uh, in the election process because people think you're not going to vote in the first place. But if you are activated, if you are um, focused on, then you can, your voice can be part of the larger voice uh, in the democratic process. Voter suppression, uh, um, uh, maybe I'll, I'll push back against what sounded like an assumption in the question. We do care about voter suppression very much. Luckily in California, it's less common and less uh, egregious. Uh, but we, my office, we go to where the problems are. We have filed briefs and um, legal filings to push back against suppression in its many forms in the places where it's happening in a more egregious way, where um, including um, the, the proposed law in, in Georgia, which said that you, you'd be criminalized for giving food and water to those waiting in line to vote. And so uh, we care about those and we're active, um, but we can never be vigilant enough. And I guess the only thing I want to lift up um, what the attorney general said that at least uh, in Arizona and Nevada and other places, organizing actually pushed against voter suppression rules and, and turnout actually increased um, after those kinds of laws. So there are things that you can do on the ground that make a big difference um, in terms of how people are able to exercise the franchise. So related to that, um, we have more. Um, this November, a record number of far-right conservatives are on the ballot for secretaries of state. How do you think these candidates might impact the power of voting in those states? I've been asked this question. And, and first of all, I, I think it's absolutely disqualifying to run for office and say that, um, you know, that, that, the, that the election was stolen. Uh, without facts, proof, or evidence, uh, and to have election denying be your platform. That, that, that's the platform of the major candidates for Secretary of State, AG, and Governor in Arizona. That's what they're running on. And people have a chance to vote for that if they want that or, or, or not. But let's say they vote for it. And, and there are many running across um, the, the, the state or the nation uh, for different statewide offices. So some are going to win who are election deniers. But just because you win doesn't mean you can go into office and, you know, if you're a secretary of state, um, 
validate and verify an election result based on what you think. You have to have um, the evidence and the proof to show it, and you can't commit crimes in office. You can be removed from office if you violate uh, laws and, and uh, commit crimes. So um, the fact that that is their disposition is a problem, uh, but it doesn't allow them, they don't become a, a, a monarch in their position of power, able to um, do whatever they want, whatever they want. So that means we need to have, the, the, that's where the checks and balances of our beautiful system come in. There needs to be accountability and oversight. Um, the legislature hopefully can uh, do more review and push back against some of those who have those proclaimed um, views. And so um, I think that there, our, our democracy has had many stress tests over the last number of years and uh, made it through. And I think this will be another challenge, but I think we'll make it through again. So this question brings us back to California and thinking about the importance of the local. What is the best way to get people or friends to stop sending me requests for donations for candidates in Georgia and Pennsylvania and get them to focus on local races? I live in Oakland and no one there is talking about these really important local races. <laughs> I don't know if you're going to be able to stop them, um, uh, but you can tell them what you think. And, and if you want to change the focus from other races out of state and, and focus on your local, you know, sometimes it, you know, local is always the most powerful and, you know, challenge them and say, um, you know, if, if you come on a, a campaign walk from the candidate in Oakland that I believe in, um, you know, I'll, I'll join the zoom with you in, in Georgia. Yeah, it, you, you'll both be helping each other doing good locally and, and uh, nationally. And um, I don't think it has to be either or there's a lot of good candidates running in many places one of the questions that I get actually quite a bit in, in California is, is sort of the opposite of that, which is we, we have incredible leaders in California. We have great statewide constitutional officers, mayors, council members. Uh, we're very deeply blue. We share values. Uh, but how can we make a difference in other places where they're purple, where they're red? How can we export our uh, values and the change that we seek uh, for more fairness and more justice into other states? So people mostly ask me that question and uh, being very happy with how things are generally in California. But it is right to always focus locally. Um, I don't think you have to maintain your gaze locally only. Uh, you can be at different places at different times. Um, but maybe challenge your friends to uh, help with, uh, on your local race, and then you'll promise to work with them on their, on their Georgia race. Thank you. Um, I want to be respectful of your time, and so I want to give you the opportunity. So this has to be, I think, identified as some of the most politically committed undergraduates. It's midterm season, in case you don't know. They came here during dinner time. Not that this is no offense to the organizers. There was no food. Um, and they're still here. So um, what do you want to say to this incredibly brilliant, engaged set of students who are here tonight? We need you, and we're ready for you. And I, I, I appreciate the, the engagement, the, uh, the fact that you're here. Um, when I was in college, I was focused on a lot of different things. I was an athlete in college. I played soccer. Um, I was involved in serving children in um, uh, public housing neighborhoods. But I wasn't involved in, in politics like you are, like this. And, and everyone has their own journey. Everyone has their own evolution. But the fact that you are focused at this level, at this level of intensity, at, at this stage in your lives is, is very impressive. And again, you don't need to wait for anything. You don't need to wait for permission. You don't need to wait your turn. You don't need to wait for a period of time. You, you can, and I'll say, we need you to serve now, to step up. So whatever you're doing now, <coughs> think about what else you can do. 
to step it up because you're the, you're the leaders of the pack. You're the ones that are the most focused, the furthest ahead, and we need our, our, uh, you know, our top performers to do even more in the toughest of times. And those times are now. We don't have to uh, wait for them to, 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 to come. These are challenging times when it comes to our democracy. These are challenging times when it comes to uh, misinformation, extremism. Um, so uh, raise your voice, step up, run, maybe run for office. Maybe some of you already are. Um, but you can run for office now. You don't have to wait. And uh, Berkeley has a, has a great tradition of young uh, student activists and leaders stepping up into positions of power um, in, 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 in councils and legislatures and even Congress. So um, your time is now. And you can tell people if they challenge you that the attorney general said your time is now. <laughs> Well, I'm sorry to those um, who gave questions that we didn't get to, but please join me in thanking Attorney General Bonta for giving us this time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. An honor. Hi. I'm realizing, Alex, I don't know how to script this part. <laughs> Great question. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, we'll just... Awesome. Okay. Well, again, we'd like to, you know, thank the Attorney General for coming out here today. Uh, but for the second half of our program today, uh, we're going to be kind of going into the weeds a bit more with two uh, really accomplished individuals. We have the Vice Provost who's staying up here to give more of her own personal knowledge. Um, as we said, she's the Vice Provost of Graduate Studies um, and has been doing political research for many, many years. Um, but we'd also like to welcome to stage um, Duff Sundheim, who is a... Uh, uh, is a former Republican Party chair for California um, and has been very involved in uh, kind of California politics for many years. Uh, and we're really excited to have both of them in conversation. Um, so yeah, go ahead. First? Yeah, okay. sure. Awesome. And then there's me, I guess. Hi. <laughs> 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 okay. So uh, that was a really incredible uh, way to start off the evening. And I don't know how we're going to top that off. Um, but we're going to try our best. Um, but, you know, as a current college student and, of course, a registered voter, I'm very excited to discuss civic engagement and voter turnout, especially as college students. Um, and we are very lucky to be joined by these two uh, who have, you know, experiences on opposite ends of the political spectrum, but are really united here today uh, to discuss, you know, you guys to discuss how us as young people uh, can become more civically engaged. Uh, but there is one, I think, unbreachable divide between these two. Uh, and it's one is a tree and one is a California golden bear. Pick which side you like. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, he's on our home turf. So but he's I been think, a big supporter of the game. Yeah, but, you know, has, has been a supporter. So maybe we'll give him a little, a little leeway with that. Um, but we, you know, with the 125th anniversary, I just got to start off with the Go Bears. Um, you know, we can't, can't start off without that. Um, <laughs> boo! Oh. No! So you came prepared. You knew it was prepared. coming. You knew it was coming. Wow. This is the Rose Bowl. Some teams go to there and what? actually play a football game there. <laughs> okay. Well, you with that... <laughs> Um, but yeah, so from there, uh, we're going to kind of hop into learning a bit more about our two incredible panelists. Uh, so I'm going to give the Vice Provost a bit of a speaking break after doing such an amazing job moderating the fireside chat. Um, so Mr. Sunheim, if you could give us uh, kind of a little bit more information about yourself uh, and really highlight your civic journey. 
Sure. Well, it's not as interesting as the attorney general, but it's very personal. I grew up in Chicago, Illinois area, and I had a brother with mental disabilities in the 60s. And so we were constantly fighting the state to have the right to keep him in our house. And so there weren't the resources for that at the time. And so I was, things came very easy to me. I was very successful. And my brother, who frankly I thought was a better person, was always being discriminated against. And we'd go to places where I'd try to buy clothes. And, you know, they would talk about my brother and talk, talk about him openly about being a spaz and all that sort of stuff. So I always felt like I had been given things that my brother hadn't. So my responsibility was to try to get back. And I always tried to do that. And my mother, um, given that she was dealing with my brother, um, was a harried person. There was another uh, child in our family. So in 1960, when Eisenhower gave his farewell address at the Republican convention, I was shocked that in the middle of the day, my mother sat down in an ottoman in the TV room and actually watched uh, somebody speak, the President Eisenhower. And she was crying. And I thought, wow, anything that can get my mother's attention and affect her that way must be worth being engaged in. So I've always had kind of that dual thing of being part of the community, understanding the needs of people that don't have as much as I've been given, and at the same time wanting to be actively engaged. So I kind of did that all the way up and through 1999. And then um, Bill Bradley, a Democrat, was running for president, and I was helping him out, and he came to my office one day and said, what's wrong, Duff? And I said, oh, nothing. He goes, oh, I can tell. Something's wrong. And I said, well, um, Senator, all my life I've had goals. I wanted to go to a good school, have a nice family, get a good job, and, and I've lost my ambition. And he started laughing. I go, Senator, that's not very funny and, uh, to me. And he said... Duff, I, don't, I know you well enough to know what's happening. You've gone from an object-based code to a principle-based code. And that's not something to mourn. That's something to celebrate. And it will take you places that you've never dreamed of. So then I go, okay, I'm going to start doing that. So um, the attorney general mentioned the Pacific School of Religion. So I came to Pacific School of Religion. I was going to become a minister. And uh, this guy, Doug Adams, fabulous guy, um, kept talking about politics, and I kept talking about religion. And finally, he shook me, and he said, you know, you think you have courage, but if you really had courage, you would take the values that you're talking about and take it to the public sphere. And, I, and so after a while of being in this class and everything, I said, okay, I'm ready. And I go, where do I go? And he goes, it'll come to you. I go, what do you mean? Go, it'll come to you. And so for three years, it didn't come to me. <laughs> And um, I was very frustrated. And uh, then I gave a speech um, near the Stanford campus where I said partisanship was a severe threat to American leadership, that if we were going to be a model to the world, we had to start behaving more civilly with each other. 2002, right? Little did I know. And somebody in the audience was a man by the name of George Schultz. And he said, I like your message. Um, Can you come to my office the next day? So I came to his office the next day, and that's what took us on the journey that we'll talk about later, which is the attorney general. So that's kind of the, but it's always been those two things. It's, you know, my personal journey and how I can personally make a difference, but 
in mind that there's a public side of that. And I think that's really important to you because if you're going to really stay true to your values, that choice is going to come and you need to be ready to make that choice. I traveled around uh, this state and the country with Kevin McCarthy for four years. I don't recognize him anymore. And, you know, he made his decision and I made my decision and they were very different decisions. And you may have to face that decision. So really, I think it's really building up your values and what's important to you because there is a time that they will be tested. Thank you so much for that answer, Duff. And I think kind of what you're discussing about the the personal and the public and kind of the connection between those two uh, is definitely something uh, connected to the vice provost's journey. Um, But vice provost, uh, I'd love to hear more about, you know, your story and and a real emphasis on what inspired you to devote yourself to researching uh, educational and political inequalities in the United States. Thank you so much, and thank you again um, for having me here. So my parents are Cuban refugees. They arrived in Los Angeles in 1961 because my father hated Miami, and L.A. was warmer than New York. That's how immigration happened. (laughs) Um, And they didn't, you know, for a a period of time, this was before the Cuban-American Adjustment Act, so they had to go through a third country. They went through Jamaica, and because my father had been a member of a union in Cuba, that was considered a communist organization, And it was not entirely clear that he would get a visa. He spent three months waiting in in Jamaica without being able to work with no money. He lived in in the Catholic Church. And that really, that sense of obligation and appreciation um, that the United States took us and and took us in um, has been really a core part of of my life, in addition to wanting to honor the sacrifices that my parents made by by coming here. The sorrow of exile has always been a big part of, of my family history. And um, appreciating that I need to then take that responsibility and pay it forward um, and, and do something positive with it because I would never have gotten a PhD had, I, had my family remained in Cuba, right? That would never have happened. The other part, though, I've always had this sort of contradiction. On the one hand, profound gratitude for the United States and appreciation for our democratic system. But then having grown up a woman of color in the United States, appreciating all the ways in which um, it doesn't always live up to that expectation. And, and my sense of purpose is, is doing what I can with the skills that I have to try to lessen that contradiction, right? To actually get the, get the United States system to live up to what my parents imagined it to be when they left Cuba. And so it just so happened I was an undergraduate at Berkeley, go Bears. And um, I also, uh, the other thing my parents always told me because they had to leave everything behind. They were allowed one suitcase, your, your wedding ring and a watch. We have no family photos, we have nothing. And, but what they told me is that what's in your brain, no one can ever take away from you, right? That, that material possessions can come and go, but what you have. And so education was always the number one thing. And I realized early on that there were lots of smarter people than I was, including my siblings. Um, but I got school, like I have the kind of brain that works in school. And that I thought when I was here that, that I had one Latina professor at Berkeley, it's Laura Enriquez. She's still in the sociology department. I took her her first semester teaching at Cal. And um, I was raised with the words of Jose Martí, right, that that the role of the intellectual is, again, to get society to be its best self. And I think who stands up in front of the classroom and that teaching is a noble profession and that that's something where you can really have an impact um, on the next generation. And again, I happened to be good at it. So I thought, hey, I'll read and write stuff for the rest of my career. I never imagined I would be back at Berkeley. This is like the fact that I this was my dream going into the academy. It never imagined that this would happen. And I feel very grateful to be able to be here and have been here for the last 14 years. 
But what I do in my research is try to use the nerd tools that I got in graduate school um, to help American democracy reach its full potential. And so I've spent the last 20 years working directly with uh, community-based organizations and just using my statistical skills and other kinds of skills and my analytical skills that I got in graduate school to help them really think through the changes they want to make and to improve their practice. Because if you've ever worked at a nonprofit, you know, folks are just trying to keep the lights on, right? They don't have time to think about the literature. They don't have time to think about, well, what do we know about this, that, or the other, what works, what doesn't work. And so my job is to come in and give them the space to be able to learn and, and, and really apply their, what they think is going on with the world and, and, and to have a greater impact in their work. And so I feel like I've, I've been able to develop this great sweet spot. So not in public service. I worked on the Hill for a year. That made very clear to me that I did not want to run for public <laughs> office. Um, but I feel like through my teaching, I've had the opportunity to, to really affect how people see the world. And then through my research, I'm able to work with incredibly inspiring, amazing people and maybe do a tiny little bit to make their work a little bit more impactful and a little easier for them because I carry some of the of the kind of, I guess, mental load um, of figuring out how, how to carry out the things that they want to make change with. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate kind of the, the outlining of your journey. Um, and a lot from that, I was talking, obviously, you know, connecting, you know, your experiences and your, your passion, your kind of your desire to give back to this country while also knowing that, you know, there are wrongs, there are things that have been done and continue to happen uh, that harm, uh, you know, minority communities. Uh, so I'd love to hear a bit more about, like, your first experience voting, if you, you know, uh, remember that experience and any of these barriers that you might have come across, uh, you know, in your experience voting and just overall being civically engaged. My first experience voting was in the 1988 presidential election. Dukakis was on the ballot. I stood in line for two hours outside of Unit 3 to cast my vote for the first time. <laughs> and by the time I got home, they had already called the election. I think that's the last election where they, they, the polls hadn't even closed right. in California. You want to be depressed about whether your vote matters? Like, I literally <laughs> just you know, skipped dinner, stood in line. Seriously, people. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, I've also did a lot of community activism. And so I think a lot where my uh, civic engagement came from is more, I really enjoy being in community with people and working together to just fix things. And so that's the more powerful part, voting. I've always done it. I've done it every time, again, for the same reasons that the attorney general was laying out, you know, in honor of all the people who've died in order to make that possible for me. But, um, yeah, my first experience was not a positive one. <laughs> well, hopefully any of the, you know, first-time voters in the audience... You will please, not have that experience. Yeah. <laughs> please, you know, take that as a cautionary tale, not the absolute truth. Uh, please still go out and vote. Um, but to kind of take that point, right, that voting is not the end-all, be-all of civic engagement, I want to uh, pivot a little bit and turn over to Mr. Sunheim uh, to discuss, you know, you were uh, a former chairman of the California Republican Party, uh, and in that role, you received, you kind of accomplished many historic victories uh, for the Republican Party that they really haven't had uh, since your time there. Uh, I was wondering if you could share a bit about what what you think the the tactics, the kind of what what you did in that role, and what the people that you worked with did that really was able to connect with so many Californians that you know seems to have been lost over the years. Well, first of all, it's a team. It's never one person, and I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to work with Governor Schwarzenegger 
And we didn't have to talk much because we really understood each other very well. But he had a view in 2006, which I was really excited to play a role in implementing it. And that's, that was, we're, just as uh, the Attorney General was talking about, you know, getting the one out of five, the two out of five, Schwarzenegger wanted to go all over the state. And he wanted to listen, which was really, I mean, truly listen to what was going on in those communities. So we would have these events with community leaders. And then my role was to get them registered, to find out what the interests, what the issues were that were important to them, and then target them um, through primarily through mail. Although we did do radio and TV, we just found direct in the mailbox really worked. And uh, we had 62% of the Asian vote, a majority of the gay vote, 39% of the Latino vote, and 27% of the black vote. And so we, and we governed that way. It wasn't like, okay, this is for the election, and then we're going to govern in a different way. Things got off the track for other reasons, but... Um, it, you know, I was able to get a national award for the work, but again, it was just part of a team that really focused and understood what was going on in those communities, which then led us to do, the Attorney General was talking about the redistricting commission. That was something that we did. Um, we also did the open primary. And then after uh, Schwarzenegger left office, um, I came up with this concept of pension reform, which Governor Brown uh, then endorsed. So, but it was from that experience of going around the state, listening to what the concerns were of the people, addressing those issues as they understood them, but also understand from people that are just struggling to get by and can't see the bigger picture, what aspects of the bigger picture was I able to see that I could have an impact on. So again, it's direct uh, understanding of what's going on with the individual, but also because of the luxuries that I have, see the bigger picture a little bit better and look at the institutional changes that you can make because of it. Definitely. And I think your, your point of connecting, uh, looking at the big picture from you know, your top-level position to really reaching out to the voters to you know, a place like this you know, where you're able to have those conversations and really you know, connect with those issues uh, kind of connects a lot with the next question I have for the vice provost, which uh, is about actually in your preface to the third edition of Latino Politics uh, with Christian Osim. Uh, which is you know, now sitting at the top of my to-read list. It seems very interesting. Um, you said something that really, really struck me, and it was that demography is not destiny. And you know, as one of the nation's foremost experts on political engagement within communities of color, I'd really love to hear your thoughts on the, you know, the state of minority youth engagement and the overall trends we're seeing with uh, you know, Gen Z, younger voters, uh, as they're heading into the midterm elections. Thank you for that. So what I meant by that statement is that there's a tendency to say, oh, the reason that California politics have changed is because the demography has changed, right? The reality is the state of Texas has had the exact same demographic change, right? So what happened in California was you had decades of organizing that happened, right? You had decades of engagement. You had decades of, of folks working on the ground, talking to their neighbors, you know, sort of talking about the things that people care about. And so 
what, what I've learned over 30 years, which is going to seem totally obvious, but for some reason we don't run campaigns this way, is that if you knock on somebody's door and you are like them, you're from their neighborhood or somebody that's had a similar set of life experiences, and you talk to them about the things that they care about day to day and the things that are on their minds, and you explain to them how politics, how elected officials actually affect those things. Because that was the thing I know Attorney General Bonta raised about the importance of local elections and somebody else, I don't know who asked that question, but it's your local government, right? They decide whether your trash gets picked up. They're the ones that decide whether there's that stop sign on the corner, right? They're the ones that are doing the things that actually affect your day-to-day life. And that's the place where people can have the most power, right? Because so few people vote in those elections, but we don't teach that. Right. That's not what you learned, I am sure, during your AP government class. Right. You learned how many Congress people there was. You learned who the Supreme Court justices were. You didn't learn how it is if you decide you want to stop sign who's responsible for that and how federal you know, overlapping jurisdiction under federalism affects your ability to actually fix things in your local neighborhood or why it is that zoning doesn't make sense in this place, but it's zoned this way in that place. And so if you talk to people about that and you educate them and you tell them stories about how people like them have actually won, folks will engage, either in voting or going to community meetings or whatnot. And young people are no different. And we did a series of focus groups um, last year uh, with young voters of color, and it was striking, you know, first of all, just how hard hit everybody is. You know, inflation is real. The economic impacts are real. The cost to family members, you know, family members dying, being really sick. The healthcare issues are real. Um, But what we found was there was just a profound desire for authentic leadership. Somebody who was not scripted, somebody who understood where you were coming from, and somebody who had real solutions to problems, right? Not sloganeering, not, you know, and I think the biggest problem that's happened with politics, and I'd love to hear, Duff, what you think, is this kind of marketization of how we run campaigns, right? We focus test, you know, you focus group everything, we test, message test everything, and what you end up with is with these, like, soulless sound bites that, that everybody knows aren't real, and so people who actually do authentically care, because you do not run for public office if you don't care, right? Like You have things you care about if you run for public office, because most people can make a lot more money doing something else. But somehow that authenticity is never allowed to shine through because they're so packaged that it ends up then making people feel like there's nobody there that really cares about the real things that are affecting people. And so... I would say, you know, the good news is youth engagement has increased uh, pretty dramatically over the last decade. It's still not where it should be. Young people are still the hardest to get on the doors. They're the hardest to get on the phone. It's really hard to contact them. I'm working with an organization. They actually um, found some TikTok influencers who were not political and and got them to put some political content into their feeds. And that seems like a good way to kind of get folks. Because what you need to do is politicize people's networks. And to make it easy for people to get information, but make sure that that information is information they trust. Because that's the problem. You guys have too much information, right? And a lot of it is directly contradictory, right? And so then it becomes really difficult to judge, and that's when people check out. And so I think that there's great positive movement, but I think the way we run our politics makes it difficult for people to feel like authentically engaging is going to be meaningful in their day-to-day lives. Definitely. And before I pop over to kind of get your kind of response to the, her answer and question, uh, I want to mention uh, kind of some brief 
statistics about how us as UC Berkeley students have been participating uh, in our elections and actually through the National Study of Learning, Voting and Engagement in 2022, 84.3% of eligible Berkeley students were registered to vote is quite a high number, uh, and 75% of those students who were registered actually turned out to vote. Um, but that was a presidential 2020. election, 2020, yeah. Uh, meanwhile, well, you know, those are numbers are extraordinary, but if you kind of go back to 2014, uh, which isn't that long ago, but uh, only 52.3% of Berkeley students were registered, and of that, only 19.1% voted. So you see already, you know, there is this massive change in youth participation and youth voter turnout. Um, and kind of with that information in mind, I'd love to turn it over uh, to kind of hear your thoughts on A, the, you know, marketiz marketization uh, of the campaign and how these, you know, sound bites. On both sides of the aisle, right? This is not Definitely. a partisan issue. No. I think both parties are wrong <laughs> in this regard. <laughs> um, and then also, you know, kind of touching on the youth engagement and the importance of it in, you know, especially leading up to our midterm elections. Well, I think it's obviously extremely important that people vote. I, you know, highest award I've ever gotten on the national level was voter registration and getting people out to the polls. But I think you really need to listen to your heart and see where you feel you can make a difference. Because even though I have been in the room with the president on several occasions, regularly talked with governors, what I'm doing now in some way is the most meaningful work I've done, and that's landlord-tenant disputes with immigrants um, you know, explaining to them that it, the country where they came from, you know, the law was a vehicle to enforce the power of the state upon them. And what really makes the American democracy experience so exceptional, in the words of Bono, is right up there with the Renaissance and the Beatles' White Album, is that our judicial system is to protect the rights of the individual from the government. And that's really unique. And so, you know, this is your day in court. Because what I'm really trying to do is to show them, you know, on an individual level that makes a difference in their lives, you know, what our system is all about. So whether it's getting people to vote or, you know, working on landlord-tenant disputes or whatever it is, don't feel like there is a way to do it. Really do something that resonates within you and that at the end of the day, you feel like you're making a difference. Again, I've done voter registration. Voter registration can make a difference. It is done that way. I'm going to give a Democratic example, but there are just as many on the Republican side. But the uh, Inflation Reduction Act had absolutely nothing to do with reducing inflation. It had to do with the fact that the House Democrats were down and they did some, you know, hired somebody to do a poll. And that's, oh, great, this will help. And the numbers have gone up since then. And we do the same thing on we. I'm not even part of that anymore. They won't have anything to do with me anymore. <laughs> on the Republican side, the same thing was done. When I would go into a representative's office and, a and, and I'd be meeting with them and I'd be interrupted by a policy person, they kept talking to me. When the political person came in, I had to go out in the hall. It's just the way it is these days. So you have to understand that you're, it's, 
your impact's going to be more limited in that regard. But find the way that you can make a difference. And that goes to every day. It goes to the person that's checking you out at Safeway or whatever you're doing. If you want to make a difference and you're really serious about it, you can do it every day. And you should make a commitment to try to make that difference every day. And some of the most meaningful experiences you'll have are with those people that you, you, know, you just have a chance encounter with. That's incredible. Thank you so much for your answer. Uh, and I really appreciate you know, your, your real emphasis on everyone's ability to really make that difference and how really the, the agency is in each of us. Uh, and I kind of want to get into that when, you know, obviously we're with mainly college students in the audience. Can I just say one more thing along those lines? Sorry, <laughs> but it's just, and then I'll let it go. So when I was working with Senator Bradley, I said, how come everybody says that they want to change the world? And he said, oh, Duff, don't you understand? It's much easier to change the world than it is to change yourself. <laughs> I thought that was good insight. So. I mean, yeah, we, we see how politicians act, so it definitely seems to, to ring true. Um, but yeah, I kind of want to go into focusing on the more campus level. And while we haven't gone into detail about either of your college careers, we have you know, a, a Stanford football player, an economics major, uh, and a Latin American studies and comparative literature major from UC Berkeley. Um, so I'm sure very different college experiences. Um, but I, I'd really love to hear from each of you, I think we'll start off with the vice provost, um, about how can students make their time on campus, really make the most of it, um, related to civic engagement and also beyond. Well, I want to I lift up what Duff just said, like find your passion and go with it. Right? I, I think, I, I feel like when I talk to students, often the world right now is overwhelming. Like, let's just be honest, right? There are just so many things that are wrong or that feel wrong or that feel like you want to do something about and so you just can't focus on the whole thing, right? And, and just focus on what is your thing? Like, what is the one thing? The other thing um, students often are trying to do is be strategic about their work, right? Like, I want to make a difference. What would be the thing? I've had students ask me, what, what kind of job can I get that I'm going to have the most different, make the most difference? And I was like, no, 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 that's not the way to think about it. What's the thing that you think about what you want your work life to be and then find the way? Because if you're in a job that you hate, you're not going to be good at it, right? And so figure out what are the things that drive you? What are you good at? If, if you despise public speaking, you, will, you should not be an elected official, right? Or you should not be a professor. If you love public speaking, then go do something that, that then works on the area that you care about, but that really speaks to your individual strengths. Because if each one of us cleans up our tiny little corner of the world... Like, if you add all that up collectively, that's how the difference happens, right? But you have to be in the place that you're passionate about because you need it to feed you, right? You've gone to get an education. You're working really hard. You want your professional life to be something that's sustainable, that brings you joy, and that you can feel good about. And there are lots of things that you can do that will do all those things. And so it's self-awareness really understanding what your strengths are. Obviously, you always want to put your, push your edges, right? Because we always want to be growing and, and being better. Um, but if you figure out what's your thing and just focus on that, there's so many different ways to have an impact on that thing. Definitely. Um, four things. One, figure out who you are. Um, I took a religious studies professor's class, Jerry Irish, and we moved about two years ago during covid and I went back and read the papers that I wrote for the religious studies class in college. I go, oh, that's where that came from. Mm -hmm. Time after time. 
figure out who you are. Everybody says that Reagan was a great communicator. Uh, Secretary Schultz told me this. Everybody thought Reagan was a great communicator because he was an actor. No, he wrote it down, and he wrote it down until it made sense to him. Write it down until your life makes sense to you, and then live that life because 40 years from now, you're not going to know why you think the way you are, but the time that you take now to figure out who you are and what's important to you is going to make a difference. For me, my aspiration was to help other people achieve their aspiration, and that's what I've done with my life. Second, go as technical as you possibly can and as comfortable as you can, whether that's in law, whether it's analytics, whether it's writing, whether it's reading. Go as deep as you can because the greater set of tools you have in your toolbox, the more effective you're going to be. Three, interact with the people in your class, not in terms of what they can get, uh, you can get from them, but what you can give to them. And that includes professors, and that includes your students. And finally, and most importantly, mentor somebody else that has less than you do. It will be, the, of the four, that will be far and away the most important thing you do. I ran a youth program where the athletes worked with junior high kids. I did that after I graduated. My dad said, you stand for education, and you're working with kids and traveling around the country. And then the uh, NCA picked it up, and there was this thing at a halftime of a football game. And they're talking about this program that me and another guy set up. And I'm getting lower and lower <laughs> in my seat, you know, because this was highly controversial with my dad. And he, you know, we're in um, uh, 19th hole after a round of golf. He goes, drinks are on me. That's my son's program, right? So really try to help out others. In the end, Maybe at the time they won't understand, but eventually they'll understand, and it will be the most, most meaningful thing you will do, and it will set you on a path that will change the course of your life. Well, I hope you all feel inspired. I know I do from listening to all of their remarks about you know, both civic engagement but also their own experiences. Uh, but unfortunately, this is going to be our last question. Uh, so it's going to be the you know, same question we asked the Attorney General earlier tonight. Because uh, I think you know, finding, finding hope, finding optimism in this time where you know, there is so much uncertainty, there is so much divisiveness is really important. Uh, so, so I'd love to hear, you know, is there anything that has recently inspired you or given you hope for our democracy and our country? So... so one of the core things that drives me is my kids. I have three, and um, whenever I start to feel frustrated, I remind myself, right, my job is to make sure that they have better experiences than I had in every institution I've been in. And so my hope came from my daughter, uh, my 17-year-old daughter, who's a senior at Berkeley High, who was upset about the Dobbs ruling and decided she wanted to organize a reproductive rights protest. And I have to say, I did nothing other than say, yay! Um, <laughs> And she went to the city of Berkeley. She got her permit. She, she, you know, shook us down for the money to pay for the permit. She, you know, got, found out to have amplified sound. She needed a signature from a teacher. She found a teacher to give the signature. She had to have a teacher, you know, sponsor because it was during the school day. And I got to see her out in Civic Square Park, you know, last, last Wednesday. And at least at that time, like 100 students were there just talking about how they feel about this decision. And it just was so inspiring, not only because I think she's amazing because she's my baby, but just seeing this group of young people who were really 
um, you know, speaking out about what matters to them and, and why it is that they were frustrated with what was happening in the world. You guys inspire me every day, but, um, but that experience especially just gives me hope, right, that the, that the country is in good hands and that y'all are going to fix all the things that got messed up um, up until now. Thank you. Mr. Sondheim? So America is an idea. Great Britain is a great country, but it's not an idea. France is a great country. It's not an idea. America is an idea that affects the world and is infecting the world every day. I'm fortunate enough to interact with people in the military, and they are so inspired by the Ukrainians. They go over there and they say, oh, yes, uh, Jefferson said this, and Hamilton in number 53 Federalist Papers said this. They are living it. They are fighting for those ideas that our founding fathers understood so long ago. And it's not only affecting Ukraine and making a tremendous difference there. There are other military people that have been working in Taiwan. And up until now, the rule was when the Chinese come in with the guns, you turn it over and you let them take control. That has all changed because of Ukraine. And now the Taiwanese are learning how to resist the day when the authoritarian people show up on their doorstep. So it's an idea that you and I personally had nothing to do with, but we really are the beneficiaries of, and we need to pass it on to others. So if we're going to set an example for the world based on something that other people did 200 years ago, let's treat each other with respect. Let's set an example for the world that shows that we are responsible stewards of this incredible idea that all people are created equal. And my favorite, in one of the founding documents, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as a fundamental value. Those are the things that excite me. Those are the things that keep me going. And obviously having the chance to share it with you is what really keeps me going. So thank you very much. And with that, if you give a round of applause... So I would just like to take this moment and thank our two incredible panelists uh, for coming out today and really just speaking from your heart and sharing your experiences. Uh, I know I'm very thankful, especially during National Voter Education Week. Uh, I feel like the message is even more impactful. Um, and I would also, before everyone uh, leaves, would like to thank all the people who made sure that this event could happen. Uh, from you know my team at the ASUC Vote Coalition and External Affairs Vice President's Office, uh, to everyone at the Commonwealth Club, Berkeley Women in Politics, uh, and all the other organizations, uh, lead center that we worked with uh, while putting together this event. It really was a massive team effort. Uh, and again, of course, another thank you to the Attorney General who uh, had to go do some important business. Um, but again, thank you to him for coming. Uh, and if, I think you know, the most important people here are really you guys. So please, you know, thank you so much for coming. And please come to our future events. We, uh, as you know, Lauren introduced at the beginning, uh, this will be an ongoing speaker series. We'll try to host you know, one to two events a semester going forward. Uh, and we're just really excited to bring in incredible panelists like we had today uh, into the discussion on civic engagement uh, and really bring that directly to student voices. And with that, I hope you all have a great rest of your evening uh, and happy National Voter Education Week. <laughs>
If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.